This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. (laughs) This is Mr. Holiday from My Worst Holiday, and you're listening to a fourth-hand production. Hey, Lee, uh, are you any good at those claw machine games? You know, I'm, I'm not bad at them. Uh, I, by not bad at them, I mean I've won like twice with it um, in my entire life, which I consider means that I'm actually on par with just about anybody. I could probably beat most people at it. <laughs> probably invested like, what would you say, like four or five bucks in one of those things, Lifetime? Uh, probably closer to 10 in total. Oh, you're an addict. You're hooked. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say what if addict. I told you, Lee, <laughs> what, if, what if I told you that the United States government invested $350 million in a floating claw machine to pick up a Soviet submarine from the bottom of the ocean and it worked? No way. Wait. Kinda. I think I have heard of something like that. What What was it? It's a super secret CIA black project called Azorian. No, I, I'm pretty sure I heard it was called Jennifer. Well... Welcome to Beyond Terrestrial, my Beyonders. I'm Lee, coming to you from the Bell Witch's backyard inside the Haunted Barn Studios. I'm joined, as always, with my good friend, Dan. Dan, how are you doing today? Doing good, Lee. Went out for a drive with the fam. I heard you did the same thing. We went out to the crossroads where Robert Johnson made his infamous deal with the devil. That is awesome. I'm so excited. One time I want to get down there and see the um, those crossroads, buddy. Um, I heard you went by a church recently. Might be a future episode for us. Yes. Spooky church. Haunted. Nice. There's, uh, You know, it's Mississippi. I don't know. Uh, something about the South breeds a lot of great ghost stories. So I think uh, we might have to do a whole series on local ghost stories because i found about a i don't know half a dozen in just a couple minutes 
looking online. Yeah, there's a lot out there. Awesome. We definitely should. Well, Dan, what are we talking about today? Today, guys, you know that Beyond Terrestrial is your home for the strange, the macabre, the conspiratorial, and all things supernatural. Today, we're talking about conspiracies. We're talking about a real conspiracy. We're talking about a CIA black project called Azorian, how it was built, what it did, and how it remained secret until it wasn't. And I love this story. If you have to, like, if I was to think of, like, a Bond, like, a James Bond-style story with scientists, this is it. Like, this is as James Bond as the average engineer and scientist will ever get. Um, So we watched a documentary on Project Azorian, and I loved it. It was very dry, but uh, the, the story was great. And Dan, I think you've written out the the plan for how this episode's going to go. So why don't you lead us off with what happens? Yeah, guys. Well, there's essentially two parts to this story, right? The Cold War spy submarine part, which is pretty cool. And then like the advanced engineering part of it that involves um, deep sea drillers. It's almost like, uh, <laughs> you know what it kind of reminded me of, Lee? You remember Armageddon, where they have to send the drillers <laughs> yes. to the asteroid? Oh, yes. They invested. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like that, but they send the drillers to the ocean to confront the Soviets. It's pretty crazy. Exactly. And, like, my first thought on how it was going to go, like, I really thought that there was going to be some sort of a military presence there while they were doing this. But now they're just like, hey. You're going to try to fly under the radar while you're drilling right around where they lost a submarine. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, we'll talk about that in uh, the second part. So um, let's, I guess, get to it, Lee. This whole story kicks off with the sinking of a Soviet Golf II class diesel submarine named K-129. Now, those Russians are not very original with their naming conventions, Lee. Hey, you know what? I'm not going to put it past them because, yes, they're not very original with their naming. And actually, this story speaks to and for their their thing. So apparently, the Russians had recovered earlier in the decade, had recovered a British submarine named l like 83 or something like that. Um, I don't remember offhand and I didn't take a note on it specifically. However, the Russians, once they rebuilt that exact submarine, did not change the name. They just kept it as L-823 and based their based an entire line on uh, British submarines. So there is history of this going back. But the Russians recovered it yeah, from a yeah. bay, essentially, not... Um, not from the ocean floor. Yeah, that, well, and that submarine was lost um, up in the Baltic, I believe. Um, and it was in like nine, like 30 meters of water, 40 meters 33 of water. meters. So, 33 know, meters, which is a, over approximately a, like 100 yeah, feet. Yeah, yeah, not that far down. So, um, the, the K-129 was on patrol in the Pacific Ocean near Hawaii. Um, 
it radioed into its base that it had made it to its patrol area and then uh, didn't radio in anymore. Well, maybe they got bored. Is that what the Russians thought? (laughs) Maybe they were just like, forget Um, it. (laughs) Let's go to Hawaii. Yeah, well, you know... Stuff stuff happens out there, so the first time they missed uh, a call-in, they were like, okay, well, stuff happens. The second time, they said, oh, well, you know, we gotta try and get these guys on the horn. And they started trying to contact the sub, um, and nothing came back, so they called out a search. Okay. Alright. I-, I remember hearing about that search. Um, but they, from what I saw they they kept it as low-key as possible um which is you know russia's kind of call sign right they try to keep things on the down low um and underplay it very very significantly yeah of course um the soviets at this time would keep anything like that really hush hush they don't want the embarrassment of losing a submarine at sea um and they don't have to tell anybody you know it's uh you know, essentially a dictatorship, so they just do whatever they want. Okay, yeah. I can see that. I can see trying so. to keep it quiet, but at the same time, like, you would think that... Uh, I guess I'm just of the mindset that you would think that they would be like, Hey, guys, can you help us find our people? But see, people were expendable to the Russians. Well, they're expendable to us, too, so whatever. Right. Right. Well, at the height of the Cold War, they're not going to reach out to us, you know? Well, of course not, um, but maybe maybe cause... China or something. Well, what are the Chinese going to do at that time? I guess you're right. At that time, they weren't a global power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyways, um, they had ships and planes out searching for this submarine for 72 days. Um and they didn't find anything. They couldn't find any debris. So they they called off the search um, and all went home. But it turns out, Lee, the good old U.S. of A., the good guys, we knew exactly where that boat was the well, whole time. Well, we had a we had an advantage over them, though, didn't we? We had the uh, the underground or the undersea um, listening posts all throughout the Pacific. Yes, there were underwater hydrophones stationed uh, throughout the Pacific. And now I know you would initially think, well, if they're listening in the water, they must be listening for ships, submarines, right? Turns out, no, the hydrophones that broke this that were able to hear the explosion of the K-129 and its sinking and locate it were actually operated by the United States Air Force. What do you think the Air Force was listening for under there, Lee? Man, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, Well, I say your guess. You already know because you're asking me this question and you like to ask me loaded questions like this. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Uh, My guess would be planes somehow. Uh, no, no. They were listening for nuclear bomb tests. Oh, okay. So they were they were listening for it being on, like, islands or stuff? Or can you hear that um, even if it was on mainland, mainland Russia? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, a nuclear bomb's going to create, especially if it was, like, buried underground or something like that, it's going to create seismic waves. 
um, and all kinds of sounds. And I guess uh, they it's a way that they can enforce test ban treaties and things like that, having these listening devices out there. So, yeah, it's, it's actually what... pretty impressive. So the Air Force's uh, water listening technology to find nuclear bombs was able to find the explosion that sank the K-129. They were able to locate that. And uh, after the Russians left, we just kind of moved on in there. You know what I mean? Slipped well, right course. in. <laughs> well, and and there was, a, there was a submarine that went in and checked out, uh, basically took photographs of the site. And uh, I had a really hard time with this, trying to track what was going on. But it ended up being a composite photograph, much like... The flat earthers like to uh, debate the fact that the the you know the sphere of the Earth can't be real because all photographs of it is composite. Um, but this helped us locate right. a submarine in this Pacific Ocean and uh, and retrieve it. Um, mostly, yeah. So <laughs> check it out. Um, let me tell you a little bit about this boat, Lee. Uh, the USS Halibut was the ship that located the K-129. Um, the Halibut was a cruise missile submarine. Like, it would surface and be able to launch a missile from the deck. Um, but it was repurposed for special operations. Um, and it had a set of robotic cameras that were called FISH that they used... Um, mainly to find, like, missiles that the Soviets had been testing. They would fire them off into the Pacific, and then we'd go try and find them to deconstruct the technology and figure out what the Soviets were doing. Okay. So so they used that technology and the location information from the Air Force hydrophones to find out where the K-129 was. They came upon it. And took over 9,000 pictures, Lee. 9,000? I, I didn't hear that 9, number. 9,000 wow. pictures. Wow. Yes. That's crazy number. And these pictures, if if you see them, um, guys, you can go check out the documentary we watched. It's called Azorian, The Raising of K-129, and it's on Amazon Prime. Um, if you go check it out and see it, the... Any single photo is like it's taken from just a few inches away, and it's very dark, and it's very hard to tell what's going on in the photo. But like Lee said, uh, they sent all these pictures back to the CIA and to their photo experts, and they composited them, and they were able to see the submarine on the bottom of the ocean. Lee, now you didn't hear the 9,000 number. Did you hear the number about how far down the K one twenty nine was? Oh yeah, I when was, she said I was paying attention to that number. Floor. That was sixteen hundred and fifty feet down. Sixteen thousand five hundred. Sorry, sixteen thousand five hundred feet down, three so, miles. So below yeah, the surface. To give you an idea of the 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 scale of that, we talked about a, a submarine sinking and being retrieved. Um, in the Baltic, and that was a hundred feet down. You're talking sixteen hundred and fifty times deeper than this, than that original submarine was. 
It's a crazy number. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, well, it's like 165 times deeper. Thanks, than Dan. 100 feet. <laughs> just, just, just got you there by a order of 10. That's all right. <laughs> but, um, dude, it's a long way, three miles down. And the pressure at that depth is insane. Yes. So, Crazy numbers. Um, numbers where like so, most submarines can't reach this depth. No, 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 no. Um, and so anyway, the that's where the K one twenty nine sat, um, and it's very close to the international dateline, uh, wherever this location is, um, and. The pictures that the CIA put together revealed a little bit about what might have sunk the K-129. Now, Lee, there are some conspiracy theories about what happened to this ship. Um, But there's, I guess there's two explanations, being that it was the Cold War. There's the American explanation and the Soviet explanation. Do you remember what the Soviets said? Oh, happened? absolutely! And the best part is the American ex- explanation actually has evidence against this. However, the Soviets believed that we had a ship called the Swordfish, um, another submarine that um, collided with uh, this submarine and sank it. Uh, their basis is that it ha- it needed some sort of repair around the. Uh, the mast area, I think they called it, and uh, at right mm-hmm. around that time frame. So obviously, it must have collided with something in order to create that damage. So it must have collided with their ship. Now, Dan, I believe that you have some uh, some evidence going against this. Yeah, well, the uh, swordfish theory is actually really easily debunkable. Um, one, it was operating in the Sea of Japan in response to the USS Pueblo incident, which you'll recall is when the uh, North Koreans captured one of our spy ships. I, I don't recall, um, but thank you for telling me. Yeah, that's what happened. Uh, the North Koreans still have the Pueblo on display. Um, nice. I wonder how Kim Jong-un as- is doing right about now. I heard he's dead, but... You know, I heard whatever. he's pretty sick. Uh, <laughs> By the t- by the time this comes out, we'll find out whether or not he's dead or Through alive. The magic of time travel. Um, <laughs> um so anyways, um the swordfish did come to Japan for repairs. Um it had hit something and had bent the periscope and when it just so happens that a Japanese newspaper took a picture of it coming into port and you can see the bent periscope as it comes in. Um, no other damage to the mast. So speaking of which, even if, even if the, the, the accident had happened, as they said, if the bent periscope was the only damage, I doubt it would have cost a massive, um, how do you put it? Massive destruction of the entire other ship. Yeah, the catastrophic failure and sinking? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Um, I don't know a lot about the physics of colliding underwater objects, um, but I know you get enough water in one of those subs that's going to go to the bottom. That's true. Okay, fair enough. Well, the point of the matter is, literally that picture was taken like 
within a couple hours or something, days of the of the sinking of the other ship. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't match up with the ship's log. Again, if you know you want to be a real conspiracy theorist about this, which um, there are some Russian admirals who do very much subscribe to this theory. Um, you could say, well, those logs and everything were all falsified. Um, but, you know, the swordfish explanation just doesn't hold a lot of water. Pardon the pun. So, well, it turns out, Lee, that actually was not the official explanation released to the Soviet public. What was their explanation? So they said what happened was uh, the K-129 was operating in snorkel mode and then took on water. Okay, so snorkel mode is essentially where the ship stays just below the waterline um, with um, with the ability to send up essentially breathing apparatuses for the engine itself, not for the people inside. Am I correct with that? Uh, yeah, yeah. So the... The K-129 was a diesel-electric submarine. Uh, so it, it, use... required, um, it required air intake and, and uh, an exhaust port um, to operate in diesel mode. Uh, electric would only go so far, especially at that time. Am I correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the benefit of the batteries is when you turn off the motor and go to the electric, um, it, the sub can operate pretty much silently. Um, yeah, but the problem is, is it's limited of time, right? It does. It does need air intake from time to time. Um, and if it was operating in snorkel mode and then slipped below the level that it should be at, um, the boat could take on water. And if it wasn't handled properly, it could lead to, uh, sinking the ship. Okay. Um, I'm not going to argue with you. Okay, that's what their official statement was. Yeah, that's what they said happened, but... I don't think it's what actually happened. (laughs) Yeah, there was some evidence to the contrary. Um, Oh, you mean the the cracked torpedo tube? (laughs) uh, No, dude, missile tube. Missile tube. Oh, wait, did I neglect to mention that this submarine was carrying three nuclear missiles? Yeah, I I apologize. Yes, the missile tube, and you did neglect to mention it. That's okay. We'll cover it right now. This submarine was capable of striking the mainland U.S., um, and it was at a point where it probably could. Um, And it was Uh, carrying the most advanced missiles that the Soviet Union had had at the time for nuclear missiles. Well, it could have struck Hawaii. Uh, I believe they said on there the range of these submarine-launched missiles was like 750-some miles. So, um, yeah. I just got to, I've just been blown away by how far Hawaii must be from the mainland U.S. I apologize. Oh, I realize you're right, but in my head it took yeah. a second to comprehend. Like, yeah, it's definitely more than 700 miles, Lee. <laughs> uh, but anyways, um, yeah, it was... It was loaded up with nuclear-armed weapons, uh, thermonuclear missiles carrying a potential destructive capacity of one megaton each. So that's a pretty high number. That's better than um, 
Hiroshima or Hiroshima, I apologize, and uh, um, Nagasaki. Yeah, um, one megaton is the equivalent of one million tons of TNT being pow, shot off. That's a crazy number. Like, I don't... It's hard to comprehend, and it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And this... Oh, did I mention this was in 1968? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it only got worse. Yeah. So, <laughs> For like another 20 years. <laughs> this this was the capacity that we ha- that the Soviets had in 1968. Um, so, yeah, pretty pretty darn destructive so lee what is the evidence uh that leads us to the uh official united states explanation um well one is uh the sound evidence that led us to discover its location yeah, um, there we were, actually heard an explosion something there happened. were multiple explosions weren't there like there was yes. one yeah um so that that leads me to believe that there was probably one hit where something went boom and then maybe at best case scenario something then impacted the um seafloor. Uh worst case scenario two things went boom um which is a very possi- very strong possibility as well. Yeah. Well, so here's here's the idea. Um March 11th, 1968 midnight two explosions poo pow pow um we believe that some kind of catastrophic missile failure occurred either a detonator charge went off there was a fuel fire um something happened inside one of those missile tubes um that set something off and brought a whole bunch of water onto that boat that fits with the um the 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 later found uh radiation that was left on the boat which um Mm -hmm. tells me that at least one of those nuclear weapons was compromised uh either by hit con or hitting the sea bottom which is a little bit iffy they designed these things to take a little bit of a hit um but it was russia so maybe not <laughs> so yeah well and you also got to think uh corrosive salt water on these that's things true. for that's quite true. a while um in fact salt water corrosion could have led to a fuel fire um so there's a lot of different possibilities about what could have happened either way um the photo evidence suggests that uh, something happened to one of those missile tubes. It was cracked. Um, according to the data that we had from the hydrophones, they estimated that when this catastrophe occurred, the K-129 was operating at a depth of 666 fathoms. Okay, first of all, if you're up, I don't care who you are, and I will officially tell all the generals out there don't ever inform your um, your submarines to operate at that level. I don't care. I know that it's superstition. Just stay away from it. Like you stay away from the number 13 in building buildings, just stay away from 666. Right. Well, I mean, a couple things, Lee. Uh, the unit of a fathom is pretty 
esoteric unless you're, you know, a sailor. They are sailors. Yeah, they were. Um, but, you know, <laughs> they're also Russians, so they were probably using meters, to be honest. Well, okay. I don't know. Does does a, uh, you know, ship operating on a metric system use fathoms? I, I don't think so. I'm not sure what a fathom is. What's a fathom compared to a league? Oh, wow. Um, why, Why'd you have to throw league in there? Um, Lee, a fathom six feet. A fathom is six. Thank you for that. Yeah, there you go. That's a weird uh, controlled number. Like, okay. Yeah. A league is like two point something miles. I don't even know. It's a weird one. Okay. Well, so. hey, Dan, on that note, 666, let's take a quick break and we'll reconvene uh, this after a few words from our friends at Fourth Hand. A very Brady podcast. Join host Tack Van Sickle and his guest each week as they hilariously dissect the iconic TV show, The Brady Bunch, one episode at a time. He was so creepy, though. Like I was like, he's like, I guarantee you, if they could have really done the show the way they want to do it, like he was going to have a cup to the door listening in that night. (laughs) A look back at a simpler time where everything was groovy. So her kids almost wrecked their marriage. Her employee shames her and she like thanks both of them. It's awesome. So grab your potato sack and head out to the backyard for some fun. She's in her own room. Like, what did we like, tell what? her about sleeping? <laughs> like they went and got the entire family for dad to pick her up and put her in her bed two feet away from the desk. And obviously before they did that, they also said, family, go get your bathrobes. Everyone needs to be in a bathroom. <laughs> a Very Brady Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are available. They have some compromising pictures of Alice that they could have used uh, to blackmail her and keep her there. Um, I've seen those pictures, and Alice is hotter than you think. I'm going to just put that out there and say it. Uh, that blue dress doesn't do justice? Uh, no, it does. For, for me, that blue dress does everything. Far out. Poor You're man, a bad man, man, Tack. You're a bad human. There's a lot of weird in this show. All right, guys, welcome back from that break. Dan has been telling us about um, K-129 and its wreck. Uh, So let's get back into it. We were just talking about us being at 666 fathoms, which is six feet. A fathom is six feet. It is. Yeah, a fathom is six feet. (laughs) It Uh, is much more. (laughs) Yeah, 666 fathoms is like, you know. 4,000 feet or something like that. But anyway, um, at those depths, uh, again, we're talking March 11th, 1968, midnight, catastrophic missile failure aboard the Soviet diesel submarine K-129. Now, at 666 fathoms, something goes wrong. Again, 4,000 feet down, um, the ship imploded and that's going to be a bad time um everyone aboard all hands were lost um almost instantly so you're yeah bad times and it settled on the bottom 
And luckily, we were able to find it with a network of advanced listening devices under the sea and a advanced uh, camera system on a specially equipped submarine. But Lee, there's one more theory about what sank the K-129. And it's so conspiracy-ish that it was not included in the documentary that we watched. Oh, really? Lee. Oh, yes. We're talking about the rogue ship theory of the K-129. So the story goes, and again, there's no evidence for this because the K-129 is at the bottom of the ocean with all hands lost. But the story goes that maybe the K-129 wanted to leave her patrol area. Maybe the K-129 was not under the control of the Soviet Navy anymore. Maybe the K-129 was going to launch her birds at the United States. Okay. One quick thought on what we were just talking about being about 4,000 feet of water. I just did some quick estimates on a nice little uh, converter that I found. That would be about 118 atmospheres. Just Yeah, that's a bad time. That's a bad time. Okay, so mm-hmm. who was controlling it? What was did we like narrowly avoid the um AI apocalypse in 1968? Like what's going on? Um well, I mean, it would have been it would have been your classic duck and cover situation. Um there's a lot of stories out there about, you know, rogue Soviet commanders who could have uh, you know, launched against the United States. And a lot of them are just stories. Um, and this one seems like one of those ones that's just a story. But uh, conspiracy theorists really like it um, because, well, you know, the CIA was involved. A lot of this is very hush-hush during the Cold War. So it it does make a good tale. I'll give them that. Yeah, it does make a good tale. Um. I don't know. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of issues with that. The first issue is, so why did the missiles explode if there was a commander taking... Did somebody sabotage the ship because they were like, no, we're not going to do that? There's a lot of moving parts in that conspiracy theory that threw me off. Yeah, so that's actually a pretty... I think that is actually part of it, that maybe the crew scuttled the ship... Uh, to keep the captain from going rogue and launching. Um, but, like, who who even was this captain? What's his personality? I don't know. Um, none of the research that we did uh, really went into it. So I, I, I really couldn't say. Yeah, I, I think this one's one of those crazy ones. It sounds like a Russian accident. Let's be honest. I mean, during the Cold War, both sides were taking a lot of risks. Um, but it also seemed like well, Russia may have been a little bit more fast and loose with the uh, design process than the Americas right. were. You know what, Lee? That rogue ship theory reminded me of a story that I heard about a guy named Stanislav Petrov, who was a Soviet radar technician who may 
possibly have saved more people in the history of the world than anyone else. Tell me more. So the story goes that old Stanislav was there doing his job watching radar screens for American missile launches. And it lights up. It says there's been a launch. It keeps lighting up. It says there is an imminent missile attack coming to the Soviet Union. What do you think old Stanislav did? Well, considering that he saved lives and we're not we we haven't heard anything about World War 3, my guess is that he kept his mouth shut and waited for more information. Yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> he he realized at the time there wasn't a reason for the Americans to launch and being knowledgeable about the system, he assumed that it was some kind of a glitch. And even though he was bound by duty to inform his superiors, he was afraid that if he did, this would lead to a retaliation by the Soviets because they would not understand the system the way that he understood the system. And so he didn't say anything. And sounds like a great in, soldier to me. Yeah. <laughs> And that's those... not just me saying, like, thank you for rescuing my forefathers. Like, <laughs> Yeah. In those, in those very tense minutes uh, where he's got a screen telling him missiles are coming for his country, uh, he just waits and he waits and he waits and no missiles hit. And it turns out that there was a glitch in the system. Um, and by not reporting it, he may have he may have saved the world he probably did cuz at that time i mean between the us and the soviets we had way too much dam- I, I mean we still do but we had way too much damaging technology like way yeah. too much yeah so that just goes to show the height of okay. paranoia that existed at this time um and Again, the Soviets, they never found that boat, um, but we happen to know where it was. So the question becomes, Lee, what are you going to do? The opportunity, the intelligence that existed on this ship was a potential gold mine for the United States, and they wanted it. So they decided they were going to take a shot at it. Um, What's the worst that's going to happen? We don't get it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, or, you know, or it could be considered an act of war by the Soviets, so... Oh, wait, yeah, that's true. And there's precedence with that, because according to maritime law, um, most military ships were considered exempt from um, salvage rules, so we couldn't fall back on maritime law being... Oh, it's exempt from, or oh, it's a, oh, we salvaged it. it. It's now our property because of the maritime law showing that salvage for military boats was uh, not considered part of that. Yeah, yeah, Lee. Um, so technically, our attempts to recover the K one twenty nine were acts of piracy. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I guess it's more like privateering than piracy. 
well, I'm, I'm mean, just saying the people that were they were doing yeah, it they were, were by endorsed the by yeah. our government. Yeah, that's fair. Um, <laughs> it's so still people, piracy, just under a different name. Yeah. The people who spearheaded this were at a company called Global Marine. And in the 60s, they essentially pioneered the technology um, to drill into the seafloor from a ship. And there's a lot that goes into this, but they they were able to do it. And so the government reached out to them to create a feasibility study on uh, if it's even possible to raise the K-129, Lee. Now, Lee, here's a couple of the things that they had to do. They had to reach three miles below the surface of the ocean. They had to pick up over 2,000 tons. And they had to do it all. An object 130 feet long, over 2,000 tons. They had to do it all without being seen by the Russians. Now, this is a crazy amount because you have to consider that not only are they lifting the weight of the of the 2000 tons that they're talking or, yeah, the 2000 tons that they're talking about. You've also got to lift your lifting apparatus, which could be that much weight as well. Right. And I mean, um, they had to dig into the seafloor underneath it to lift it all up. There was just a lot going on. And it took a pretty impressive engineering effort. And here's one of the things, Lee, that a lot of people don't realize about a black project like this. No details are handed over to the company about what they want. Mm -mm. The government meets with you and someone tells you what what they want you to do. And you have to write it all down. They don't pass you anything. This is just a word of mouth from me to you. Yes. And you got to write it down and go do it. Yes. And and it's it's amazing because when you think about the specifications, it's literally just specifications as well. Like it's no like it's no. Hey, this is what we're doing. No, you get we have to pick up 2000 tons at 150 feet long from three miles below the ocean floor. Make it happen. Yeah, so uh, they had to figure this thing out, and they put together a pretty interesting plan, and they sent out one of their drilling ships to go get more information about the wreck. And what that pretty much consisted of, not of the wreck itself, but what they wanted was more information of the seafloor below the wreck because that can factor in a lot to what you're building in order to capture it. Um, if you think about once something's hit the bottom, it doesn't just stay stagnant. It's going to, it's going to fall into the ocean floor. It could content. It could official, like it could go until it hits, you know, like bedrock, not likely, but it could go that low. So right. it was, it was settling down there. The K one twenty nine. And so they sent out a ship called the Glomar 2, and they it set out on uh, June 24th, 1970. So the K-129 has actually been sitting there for a couple years now, just under the water, while we try and figure out how to get it. The Glomar 2's mission 
to take pictures of the wreck, to collect core samples, turned out to be a failure. They they broke the pipe, and they weren't able to get everything that they needed. And that had a big impact on what happened later. It had a huge impact. They They didn't get all the information they wanted, but they did have a plan about how to do this. And so they had to create a story that people would believe for why they would create this massive apparatus and send it out to the ocean. Lee, that story centered around one man. Oh, yes. So this story centered around, like, the most eccentric person that they could think of at the time. So to put it in perspective, think of Elon Musk. But, Dan, who did they center this around? A guy by the name of Howard freaking Hughes... Yeah, the Spruce Goose mastermind himself. Yes, dude. Um, so if you guys didn't watch The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> or you're, you know, less than 40 years old, you might not know about Howard Hughes. It's possible that you don't know about Howard Hughes, but you really should. Howard Hughes was, he was an aviator. He was a pioneer. He did a lot of aviation engineering that was very cutting edge at the time, most famously with a big old boondoggle of a plane called the Spruce Goose, which was na- so named because it was uh, used a wood frame. Um, it was so big. Yeah, and that one was not his greatest day ever. But, it I mean, it flew. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he actually had created all kinds of uh, real advanced aircraft that yeah. were very impressive. He was also involved in the early days of Hollywood. He's a... Uh, Fancied himself as a producer and a bit of a movie mogul. Yeah. Howard Hughes really was, like, I think my best analogy is the um, Tesla, or not the Tesla, the Elon Musk of his time. Oh, yeah. But a little bit more uh, suave and maybe a little bit more, like, crazy, actually. (laughs) Anyways, Howard Hughes was also known for being a reclusive sort of guy. After years and years of being very famous and being in the limelight, uh, he didn't want to be anymore. So by the 60s, uh, he was pretty secretive. And a lot of the things that his company did were very secretive. So it was actually pretty perfect. And they claimed that Howard was investing in a deep ocean mining project for mineral nodules on the bottom of the seafloor. Yeah. Was it magnesium that they were mining? Yeah, I guess. I mean, um, it it turns out these mineral nodules can collect on the seafloor. I didn't know anything about this. But uh, you get a group of them together in a mineable quantity, and it's actually a pretty feasible thing. So the U again, the U S couldn't just, we couldn't just fund this highly advanced boat, uh, and have it be a government ship and send it out there because why would the United States government invest in sea floor mining? It just doesn't make sense. So the CIA went to Howard Hughes said, this is what we want to do. And he agreed to the use of his name and his companies as a cover for what would become the Glomar Explorer. Yeah. 
So basically he said, yeah, you can use my name, I guess. Why not? And this is kind of an interesting thing, Lee. Um, They talk about the government office in L.A. where they ran this project. And it seems like just you look at this little office block. It seems super mundane that they work in this office, manage all these different subcontractors for a top secret CIA project that no one else knows anything about. Like, it's crazy how these black projects are actually put together. Well, and what's amazing about it is it's not just a black project. This is an engineering marvel. I'm just excited to get more in-depth on how this whole thing occurred. Right, right. When So for the Glomar Explorer, there were a lot of engineering problems to overcome. First is you have to be on a boat but remain stationary while they're trying to put this pipe down into the ocean over the target object, which is the wreck of the K-129. Yeah, so that is an amazing feat. Dan, I'm so excited to hear about this. Essentially, what they used were transponders that they placed on the uh, seafloor that would send a signal to the boat, and the boat would send a signal out to them, and they could run it through a computer... And they had a a very, very old school system, Lee. You look at the pictures from the Glomar Explorer and it's Uh it's controls. It's it's like this big old room. Um, Yeah. But anyways, uh, they had lateral thrusters Mm -hmm. and, and twin screws on the boat. And the control system could keep the boat essentially in place. So as it would float around, they would just adjust slightly to keep it in one spot. Yeah, and what's amazing about that is they actually modified an existing system they had where it was originally transponders that were sent down to the bottom, and then they realized that they could do it differently. And I'm sorry, I can't explain exactly, but they had to modify their existing system to make it more stable. Yeah, yeah. So essentially before, I believe the ship was just sending signals to these transponders, and keeping in place the idea to have the transponder send a signal and the ship. Oh uh, yeah, like pinging back kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. So it kept it it kept it more in place. The other technology that they used again, you're on this ship. It's going to pitch and roll in the sea. Mm-hmm. So this massive heavy lift system that they're going to use to pick up over. Uh, like a couple million pounds. No, um, it's like eight million pounds or more. Right, right, yes. Eight million pounds on this heavy lift system. It has to actually be able to rock so that it can stay level. Yeah. Uh, and so they built a massive gimbal to set this thing into. And the bearings for these gimbals were six feet tall. Six feet in diameter. Huge. Yeah, and the the guy that built those for the company actually explained that that was the largest ever built, and he believed that it was possibly the largest that would ever will be built. Yeah, yeah, they've never been replicated before, and they were like, I can't remember what he said. They were like four tons a piece or something like that. I mean, yeah, these they were, were huge, crazy weight too. Yeah. Oh, here we go. I have it in my notes. Fifteen tons for each one. Fifteen. Dan, how much is a ton? Something like 2,500 pounds, 27 or something like that? 
No, it's two thousand. Two thousand on the nose. So that's thirty thousand pounds. Two thousand on the nose. Wow. Yeah. For for a regular. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Huge. And then, not only is the ship going to pitch and roll in the waves, it's going to move up and down. Oh yeah. So they create yeah. they created a hydraulic heave compensator to keep mm-hmm. this thing level. Um, the heavy lift system was also hydraulic. It would move. It was two set of pistons that would move up and down and grab onto the pipe, and, and then pull one it would up. move up from yeah. Mm-hmm. So that if if the ship was moving up and down uh, while it was trying to do that. Or if the heavy lift system was moving up and down while it was trying to do its work, it would affect the stroke on the pipe and the thing would break. Just see you later. This is an amazing feat of engineering, guys. This is on par with uh, going to space, especially at the time when you think about it. They went into space with with the power of a calculator, essentially, and they're lifting something off the bottom of the ocean so and all of this all of this stuff had to be custom built so it was very impressive the machine work that went into it the math so they have their heavy lift system now they need a claw to actually go down and pick up the submarine Mm -hmm. they built this claw it sat on four legs that were designed to dig into the ocean floor a little bit uh the legs would be jettisoned when the claw functioned and lifted up um so the legs are still down there but it had eight arms that would go around the submarine and they had little davits that would slide underneath the sub to hold it and then it would be picked up and these arms had to be specially designed too, Lee, because the submarine isn't just a smooth cylinder. The part of the sub they wanted to pick up included the mast. Mm-hmm. Which, in, for the layman, the mast is essentially the part that sticks up from the cylinder of the submarine. Right, right. Um, and the mast is where the nuclear missiles were, Lee. And we wanted those nukes for ourselves. Not so we could... Uh, shoot them off, but so we could, uh, you know, examine them. Yeah, let's be real. Those nuclear missiles had been exposed to 16, like, to to crazy numbers of pressure. They weren't any good anymore, but what they were good for us were to tell us what the Soviets were working with. Right, and, you know, it's crazy um, how important, like, metallurgy is in the construction of a submarine. Mm -hmm. So... Honestly, just recovering parts of the hull to figure out how thick the metal is, um, exactly what it's made out of, that, I mean, that's pretty impressive too. Also, anything that can confirm the intelligence we already have uh, goes to prove that our system is working. So we can say, hey, this is right, this is right, this is right, but that's wrong. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, just anything they could get, but they really wanted those missiles, Lee. So, oh yeah, we already told you the one of these missile tubes was cracked, and you could see the missile inside. Mm-hmm. And this is from very bad underwater photos. They oh, could tell they were that terrible, it was terrible, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So what they did was they actually created a metal net, a chain net that would go in between two of the arms and hold the mast and capture or hold the missile in if it was going to slide out during the attempt to raise the submarine. Yeah, and that was basically another, like, this is an amazing, like, I'm just in awe of the the engineering involved, man. Like, it's crazy. So this capture vehicle had to, it had to have hydraulics on it. It had to have electronics on it. It was set up with cameras. Uh, they used the cameras to actually align that claw with the submarine so they could pick it up right and get the mast in the right spot where they wanted it. So they had to run electricity down to this capture object. They had to run hydraulics down to it. They also had to run a coax cable up from the video cameras so they could see what was going on. Yeah. Um. So that is a lot of information and a lot of, you know, technology that's not designed to be underwater. Yeah. And at a massive amount of pressure, you know, 180 um, atmospheres. The no, that was that at 4,000 feet. Let's find out what 16,500 oh, feet is. Yeah. The domes that they used to protect the cameras had steel two inches thick. Just for the just for the little cameras, Lee. Oh, and they also had to have propellers on the capture vehicle so that they could properly align it oh, with yes. the wreck. So a lot went into this system, Lee. Are you ready to find out how much 16,500 feet is in atmospheres? Oh boy, tell me. 486.73 feet or 73 atmospheres. 486 atmospheres. I rounded up to 487. You would, oh my God. Can you imagine? (laughs) No, I can't. Because if you think about that, you'd be like a puddle of goo. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, Lee, is they wanted to send this capture vehicle down and pull the target object, the wreck of the K-129, up into the Glomar Explorer. So the Glomar Explorer had a giant moon pool, doors that would slide open in the bottom of the ship to lift the target object into it. Very cool. That is very cool. So what happens, Lee, I I, I was wondering about how these uh, moon pool doors work, right? Mm-hmm. Because you think if you open up a giant hole in the bottom of the boat... You're not going to have a good time, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Maybe if you like sinking. <laughs> yeah. It turns out the doors themselves fill with air. And when they open up, it keeps the boat buoyant. Is that how it works? Totally, man. Yeah. That's an awesome idea. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. All of this technology, uh, the ship, the Glomar Explorer, was given to a company to build. It was Sun Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company, Chester, Pennsylvania. Construction started on May 15, 1971. So this took three years to actually 
lay down the keel for this ship and get it started. The Glomar Explorer was 619 feet long, 116 feet wide, 51 feet deep, and displaced 63,000 long tons. So it was a big boy. Um, you gotta be. Yeah, there's a crew capacity of, well, it's a big girl. Ships are all girls. A crew capacity of 178 people with provisions to be at sea for 100 days. Lockheed Martin, no stranger to government black projects, was tasked with building the capture vehicle. The Glomar Explorer was built over on the east coast the capture vehicle was built on the west coast uh so when the glomar explorer was finished she was christened sent out to sea for sea trials and when they got everything figured out they sent it around the cape of good horn not through the panama canal all the way down around south america yeah oh yeah she's a big she's a big girl um, and then up to Long Beach, California, Lee. Long Beach. Yes. And what was amazing about this capture vehicle and about the whole process was they had to build a special designed cis, like barge that could carry the capture vehicle to where they were going to essentially marry it with the Glomar Explorer. Yeah. In Long Beach, Lee, the Glomar Explorer, it got loaded up. All that pipe that they were going to need was loaded onto the boat. It turns out it was parked right next to the hangar where the Spruce Goose was. Well, that's perfect for, like, you know, your cover story, right? Yeah, it lined up. Um, So they had it docked right next to Howard Hughes' famous boondoggle, the Spruce Goose. (laughs) And so... Once once they got everything loaded up, they had to go meet up with the capture vehicle and this submersible barge. Uh, Lee, they didn't want anyone to see what they were doing. So they created a barge that would sink into the water. The Glomar Explorer would sail over the top of it, and then they would bring the capture vehicle up into the moon pool and no one would know what had happened. This is like this is like space travel, man. It's crazy. Yes. And what's even crazier, Lee, is they did this off the coast of Catalina Island in full view of thousands of beachgoers. Yeah, and that's crazy. Because if you consider Catalina Island was, especially at the time was like a tourist destination. So, yeah. Right. And they sent out security they sent out security boats to make sure no one got too close. They had divers under the water to uh help bring in the capture vehicle and to also make sure no one was down there. So, yeah, they got it. They got it on board and they sailed for the wreck of the K129 off the coast of Hawaii. They arrived above their target object on the most patriotic of days, Lee, July 4th, 1974. Okay. At this time, the K-129 had been on the bottom of the ocean for six years. Yeah, six years. Yes. 
the crew went to work. Uh, they had two crews that each worked a 12 hour shift and it was pretty, it was very intense work. Um, these guys are looking at, you know, millions of pounds, all this force, um, very for the time, uh, high tech and unique equipment. Nothing could go wrong for them to be successful. The pipe had to have a constant clockwise pressure because the threads that joined one pipe to the other were very tapered. Yeah. So they came to a point. If it didn't have that constant pressure, it could loosen up and then you'd lose the whole damn thing. Yeah. And when you have to have three miles worth of pipe, it's not like they got a whole bunch extra just laying around. <laughs> no. No, yeah. you build the, the ship specifically to hit that depth. Like, that's all that you can really carry. Right, right. This boat was created to do one thing and one thing only, and that was recover the K-129. Now, the crew was working under a lot of pressure, but they also had quite a few amenities on board, Lee. I don't know if you remember this from the documentary. Did you see, like, the gym and the mess hall and, like, the little movie theater and stuff that they had in there? Yeah, I remember them saying that they got, like, they got, like, fish and, or not, oh, sorry, surf and turf, like, once a week. I wish I had surf and turf once a week, man. Like that was... Yeah, dude. And they had, like, 80 <laughs> so... or 100 movies to watch and stuff like that. It was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, one more thing to point out right before they started their attempt to uh, recover the K-129. The offices of Howard Hughes's Summa Corporation were robbed. I didn't catch that part. Yes. Howard Hughes and his company was the victim of a robbery. And the CIA had to low-key inform the CIA, or, or the, the CIA had to low-key inform the LAPD that Howard Hughes was kind of sort of working for them, and they really needed to know what was missing from that office. <laughs> so, um... So, yeah. He may have had some information that could be a matter of national security yeah so hypothetically anyways <laughs> right and remember the crew of this ship is kind of sort of acting outside of international law so that's kind of a big deal yeah um, and it becomes a very big deal when the russians show up to watch what they're doing lee We'll get into more of that when we come back from a quick break. Hello, listeners of Random Other Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Hey, everybody. If you like podcasts like... Whatever podcast this is, then come listen to the Mad Scientist Podcast, a weekly show on the history, philosophy, and hard science between fringe and paranormal claims. Marie, what are some topics we've covered in the past? We have tr covered UFOs. We've covered economic collapse. We have covered cats. 
we did cover cats pretty pretty mm-hmm. distinctly. Yes. If you like podcasts and a little bit of humor and a little bit of singing and some cats, come listen to the Mad Scientist <laughs> podcast, please. <laughs> And we're back. Guys, before we left, we were telling you all about the Russians showing up to watch the Glomar Explorer attempt to pick up one of their sunken submarines from three miles on the floor of the Pacific Ocean. Um, Lee, the thing is, the crew of the Glomar Explorer, they weren't armed. No, they had nothing. And it was crazy because the initial ship sent out by the Russians was like, I guess, a reconnaissance ship. And they had a helicopter and all sorts of, you know, technology. One of the key pieces of technology that that ship had was a helicopter. That helicopter, like, took off and buzzed the Glomar Explorer several times. Um, They were worried because they had a helipad. Um, Right, yeah. The Russians could have landed on board their ship, boarded them, and done whatever they wanted. Yeah, essentially. So what their choice was, was like, well, they had nothing. They had no weapons or anything like that, so... They put shit on the deck. Like they basically said, yeah. "Let's make it so they can't land." They just stacked a bunch of boxes on the helipad and be like, "Okay, please don't try and land here." Thanks. <laughs> Which isn't a terrible plan, but if that's your la- if that's your best option, shit, you're fucked. <laughs> like, yeah, dude. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was pretty rough. But the Russians didn't attempt to board the boat. They just kept a very close eye on what they were doing. And they had done this earlier when the Glomar 2 went out to collect soil samples and all that stuff on its earlier failed mission. So the Russians were watching them the whole time, and they were going to low-key steal a submarine from them right in front of their noses. Wait. What? Yeah. Say that again. Maybe I didn't hear that right. The Russians were watching them the whole time, and the crew of the Glomar Explorer was going to steal a Russian submarine from them right in front of the Russians' eyes. Okay. Everything makes more sense because I was I was lost for a second. I thought you were saying that the Russians were going to steal a submarine from the Glomar Explorer, and I was just like... That wasn't part of the video I watched. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's pretty crazy. Um, now, the Russians, their, their top brass, did not believe that we could recover a submarine from that depth. They said it's it can't be done. Impossible. Yeah. And that was the big thing that I heard several times was, well, they just can't do it. So why are mm-hmm. we worried about it? Which played right. to our favor. Right, exactly. Plus, there was the cover story. Which held, and even even though there had been rumors slipped to the Russians that this is exactly what we were trying to do, recover their submarine, they didn't think it could be done, so they just kind of stood around and watched us try and do it. Yeah. Yeah. So the capture vehicle was sent down 
It had sonar, it had cameras, it had everything we've already talked about. When it got to the target object, the wreck of the K-129, they used three of the cameras to line line up the capture vehicle with three points on the submarine wreck. Yeah. Once they got those cameras in place and lined up, they knew that the capture vehicle was where they wanted it. So they essentially put the arms down to dig into the soil underneath that sub. Well, I think you're missing a key part, though, real quick. They actually realized once they got there that they were at a point where their particular, like, uh, drilling tube that they were using as as the tube was not going to be able to reach the wreck itself. So they had to move to deeper water and add another tube to their like run so they could back up and then do and then drop the um the uh capture vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Essentially they needed to do this because of the stroke on that heavy lift system. Yeah. And get it in the right spot where they could lift on that pipe and start pulling out uh the capture vehicle. So it turned out that when they were finally ready to dig the arms in underneath the sub that the soil on the bottom was harder than what they thought it was going to be. Uh, They might've known that if their other ship was successful. Right. Yeah. And that would have been really helpful, but a decision was made to add more weight onto the, um, the capture vehicle to help it dig Mm -hmm. into the ground. Who knows, this might have been a contributing factor to its uh, eventual failure, but we'll tell you some more. Uh, once once they did get it dug in, uh, they were ready to lift up. So they started lifting, and you can see the gauges on that heave compensator and everything go up as this lift system starts to take on weight. Once they feel like they have got the sub... They jettison the legs Mm -hmm. and start raising this sub from the bottom of the ocean. And they lifted it up over 9,000 feet. Now, they had some, they had quite a few failures along the way. One of the arms broke when they were digging it in. They were leaking hydraulic fluid the whole time, (laughs) even as they were just dropping it down. They, They had all kinds of issues going on that they were working. Um, but the, oh, and the ship was slightly rolling as they tried to lift it, mm-hmm. the, uh, the K-129 in that mast into the net. Mm-hmm. So they had all kinds of issues they're dealing with, but the big one came after they had lifted the ship up a little over 9,000 feet. So what they're over halfway when some of these arms broke loose. Yeah, and And that is where it starts to get a little strange. I mean, I still think they succeeded. Right. Um, What happened was the capture vehicle began to fail, and part of the K-129 broke off. And it turned out it was most of the part they were trying to save. Of the 130 feet that they had targeted. So the K129 split into two parts when it hit the 
when it hit the ocean floor. They wanted the front part with the mast Mm -hmm. and the missile tubes. That was about 130 feet. They went to grab it. They got it over halfway up, but then it broke. And when the arms broke, the ship broke. And only 40 feet of the K-129 were left. Now, Lee, you might have seen this. So they had cameras on the capture vehicle, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And when the capture vehicle broke and that part of the K-129 went back to the bottom, uh, the bulk of their target object, the heave compensator went nuts. It maxed out Mm -hmm. um, because they've just dropped, you know, a few million pounds of weight. Yeah. Off of what they were lifting. <laughs> um, so out of t- yeah, no 2,000 tons, they've just dropped like 1,500 of those 2,000 tons. Like, yeah, yeah. Two-thirds of what they were trying to grab. Um, so it's back at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, they call the capture vehicle control center. And they're like, guys, tell us what's going on on the cameras. And they go, nothing's going on on the cameras. It looks fine. So. You have the same problem we have at Skinwalker Ranch where the system is designed to only take pictures every once in a while to save data space. The problem is they were in between like pictures, in this case by quite a bit. Something like every 10 minutes it would take a short video of the scene. Um, So they were in between that. So they had to scuttle that or, like, clear that and, like, start, like, straight-up video to find out that there was nothing there from, like, the second third of the ship. Yeah, yeah. So the good news is that they were able to get that 40 feet up to the ship despite this massive uh, loss. And when they pulled the capture vehicle up, almost ready to bring it in, the Russian ship that had been watching them the whole time just happened to turn around and say goodbye which is awesome like so the biggest worry they had was that the russians would see them bring it into the ship well luckily enough the russians were just like f it we're going home <laughs> yeah dos vidanya comrade <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so um so luckily, uh, they waited till night. They sent out divers. Uh, they tried to make sure everything was ready, and they brought uh, what was left of the K one twenty nine up into the moon pool. And they drained the water out from the moon pool. They used timbers to shore up that portion of the ship um, because you don't want it moving in this very large cargo hold, right? And that was it. We had it. Yeah. They tested it for radiation, they went through and they found what intel they could, but unfortunately they didn't have the information that the U.S. government wanted. Right, they they definitely missed out on a lot by losing that very large, very important portion of the boat, but they did get some stuff, Lee. So now they sent in hazmat and radiation crews, and it turns out there was a nice... A nice thin plutonium film over the entire boat, Um, which they said wasn't harmful if you were in there. But if you were to use like a cutting torch Mm -hmm. to try and take pieces off the boat, 
you'd want to have some very special breathing apparatus to not get that plutonium in your lungs. I feel like that's like 1968 or 74 like thought process. Now we may say, nah, may not be the best idea. (laughs) Yeah, well, whatever. They sent people in there anyway. (laughs) And um, so the thing is the K-129 had imploded as it went to the bottom and trying to figure out what was going on in that ship was essentially like an archaeological dig. It had been crushed. Mm-hmm. So they were digging through what was left of this Russian submarine. And uh, here we go. Here's uh, some of the things that were left other than uh, residual plutonium. They found one of the K-129. Uh, they found six Russian sailors aboard in that portion of the ship. And one of them happened to have a missile manual that he might have been studying in his bunk. They found nuclear-tipped torpedoes. Very cool. In his bunk? Uh, Well, not in the bunk. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the front of the ship is where the (laughs) torpedo tubes go. Okay. Right? Yeah, I'm with you. (laughs) So, and they did, they recovered some other things, including the ship's bell. Any material, any written material they had, they brought it all, took it to the CIA, um, and there you go. So what happened? Why did the arms break? Why were the... Why, why, what happened? What was the final result of all of this, Lee? Well, ultimately, it kind of... It seemed like maybe Lockheed Martin had... Uh, somewhat dropped the ball um, with their choice of like material to use on the uh, on the capture system. That being said, I mean, you're doing something that you don't expect to I, I mean it's 16,500 feet below the ocean surface. There is certain aspects of that that you can't account for. So did Lockheed Martin drop the ball or did they not know what they were dealing with? I lean more towards that they made the assumptions that would be reasonable at the time. Didn't know that there were certain factors that would be involved. Right. Well, and so essentially what Lee's talking about is Lockheed's decision to use uh, what's called marriaging steel. Uh, Now, you can imagine some pretty high strength steel is going to have to be used in this operation. Lockheed was familiar with marriaging steel. Uh, my understanding is it's lighter weight. Mm-hmm. And so the engineers there were just familiar with this material. They thought it would be better to make the capture vehicle not as heavy to be lifted up. Mm-hmm. But it turns out this marriaging steel is also more brittle. And with the stresses that were involved on it, it just... It just led to its cracks and eventual failure. Essentially, it doesn't flex. So that's the issue there. Um, When the extra weight... And it doesn't doesn't stretch. Yeah. It doesn't stretch out like a wire either. So, I mean, it just can't... Yeah, I mean, you don't really think about steel stretching, but under millions of pounds of force, um, yeah... It might stretch or flex a little bit. So, And I think that yeah. that was the big failure that Lockheed did. That being said, 
did they have reason to believe that their steel that they chose wouldn't work? I have no idea. I don't believe so. Right. Right. I mean, it's an engineering trade-off. Someone decided uh, while they were doing the calculations that this was the thing to use, and it turned out it wasn't. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's just how how it goes. And despite the despite the failure, we did recover some very useful material, and the CIA considered this operation a success. Yeah, I agree. Um, it really was a success. It's not as great as they had hoped, but honestly, like, it's a great amount of information that we gained from that. And the fact that we picked something up from 16,500 feet is amazing. Right, right. So, and yeah, it's a very impressive engineering feat. And they planned to go out and try again. Lee, they were going to try it again. Yeah, and they were probably going to succeed. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, but Lee, the press got a hold of the story. And the CIA worked diligently to shut this down. The problem is... Oh, yeah. They shut down everybody but one person. The problem is one person is enough to ruin the whole plan. Yeah. So the journalist who broke the story was a dude named Jack Anderson. And he was actually a a pretty impressive muckraker in his day. Um, he investigated all kinds of stories, uh, mafia connections to the Kennedy assassination, Iran-Contra, a lot of, like, real legitimate conspiracies this guy uncovered and investigated. He was also kind of, sort of, friends with Joseph McCarthy when he was, like, on his communist witch hunt sort of thing, so, you know, whatever. I mean, the guy was involved in a lot of conspiracies and bringing them to light, so the CIA asking him not to run a story is exactly the sort of thing that would make him run a story. Yeah. And that's really hard because he did have credentials. He's great for, you know, the kind of belief that I have in that the government's hiding everything from you. But I still believe that the government should be able to help, you know, us fight our enemies. And sometimes that means we got to keep a secret from the American public because the American public, as far as we know, could be the Russians, could be anybody. Ooh, sleeper agents. But anyways, when the uh, story was broke to the news media, Project Azorian was mislabeled and given the name Project Jennifer. Yes. It was not Project Jennifer. Project Jennifer was just the name of the security protocol used for underwater operations of the United States Navy and the CIA. So, yeah, it literally said this should be held under project or under Jennifer clearance. And somehow that got named as the, the name of it. Right. And it turns out Project Azorian was just one of many projects under the Jennifer security system protocol. So, but it is still to this day, often uh, misnamed project Jennifer. So guys, if you're out there searching for more information, uh, you might see some places that say Jennifer and some places that say Azorian, especially if you look for sources uh, from the seventies, most of those are all going to say Jennifer. Okay. So it's mislabeled by the, uh, public by the press yes when they reported it to the public 
But anyways, now the Russians know that what we've been doing, <laughs> and they sent a request for information to the government, Lee. And this is one of the great lasting impacts of Project Jennifer, uh, or Project Azorian. The response that our government gave the Russians has stood the test of time. Here's the exact quote from none other than Mr. Henry Kissinger, Secretary Henry Kissinger. I can't do a Kissinger voice. I wish I could. That'd be good. He's very gravelly. Yeah. I I can't do it, but... It is the policy of this government to not confirm, deny, or otherwise comment on alleged intelligence activities. And then it went on to explain that essentially any government would say the exact same thing, including the Russians... Right. So anytime you hear a government official say that they can neither confirm or deny any accusations, uh, it goes back to this very pivotal moment. And he's right. Like, he's absolutely right. Do you think the Russians would have told us the same thing? No, they they wouldn't tell anybody anything. Yeah, exactly. Unless you got them really drunk on vodka. And even at that point, they'd be like, no, like. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, well, they can hold their liquor. Like, they drink you under the table, so, you know, that's just how uh, it is. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. So, Lee, uh, it turns out that all of this came out, um, and no uh, second attempt was ever mounted to recover the rest of the K-129. And years, many, many years went by, and uh, the Soviet Union fell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in 1992, as part of our kind of making up with the Russians after all of this, we actually gave them the ship's bell from the K-129, a video of the burial at sea that we gave to their servicemen. And we went out of our way to make sure that those servicemen were buried in a way that the um, Soviets would believe was fair. The bodies were probably slightly radioactive. They were placed into a uh, special vault that they sank under the sea, but they were given a Russian flag that was draped over them. They played the Russian anthem as they, uh, what's what's the word, uh, gave them up to the depths, you know, of the sea, so... Yeah, um, released their bodies to the depths. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think there you go, released. Um, so, yeah. And then the Glomar Explorer, the ship, and the technology that made all of this possible, it just sat there for 20 years, Lee. Yeah, so this marvel of what we can achieve when we feel that we have a goal to achieve sat in a essentially a graveyard for 20 years. Right. And uh, the technology on the ship was so uh, cutting edge and so singularly purposed that they thought it would be valuable to maintain in case they could ever use it again. But uh, it turned out not so much. And in 1996, 
uh, the Glomar Explorer was sold off, retrofitted, and a lot of the fantastic and amazing technology on it was scrapped. Mm-hmm. But good news, the ship is still in service and is out there doing um, essentially what it's intended for, drilling and mining the ocean floor. Now, if you think about it, like most of its original intention was it's still meeting. So I'm happy about that. Yeah. But the ju- Yeah, it's out there picking stuff up the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. In fact, it's being used to capture, what was it, magnesium from the bottom? (laughs) Mineral nodules, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of amazing. You know what? Funny story, Lee. The K-129 in its its hull had mineral nodules coming up in it, so a bit of irony there. They actually did mine some mineral nodules off the bottom. I love it. So... I personally look at this and think, wow, it's a marvel of our engineering ingenuity, ingenuity, sorry, um, to actually be able to grab something like that. I don't care that we, you know, we had a mild failure halfway up. We still picked up something off the ocean floor in 1974. It's amazing to me. Yeah. So... It's like you said, Lee, when people have a singular purpose and put their heads together, um, a lot can be accomplished. And the documentary we watched, Azorian, the raising of K-129, interviews a lot of these engineers. And it's very impressive, the work that they did. Hats off to them for keeping this, uh, keeping this cat in the bag for so long, despite the marvel that it was. Oh, yeah. If I built something like this, I would have such a hard time not saying, hey, guess what I made? <laughs> Guys, that is the story of the Glomar Explorer, the K-129, and one of the biggest CIA black projects that we ever came to find out about. As of right now, yeah, that's one of the biggest things that I've ever known about. It is crazy information. And guys, thank you for listening to Beyond Terrestrial. We'll be back next week with another story from out there. Beyond Thank you for listening to Beyond Terrestrial Podcast. You can check us out on Apple Pod, Google Play, and other major podcast platforms. And if you want to keep up with the show goings on, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Beyond T Pod. That's Beyond the Letter T Pod. And as always, you can get all of that information as well as show notes and episodes as they come out on BeyondTerrestrial.com. That's right, we got the .com. And if you want to help out the show, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or a like and a review wherever you listen to Beyond Terrestrial. 
You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.